Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 39, The September Massacres, part one. In the last episode, we witnessed the first terror. Mass arrests, suspension of liberties, even the creation of a new revolutionary tribunal. We explored the demands for justice from an aggrieved populace and saw an escalating power struggle between the Paris Commune and the Legislative Assembly. Finally, we examined the increasingly hostile relationship between the Girondins and the Montagnards, a relationship which rapidly deteriorated in the weeks following the insurrection of 10 August. This bitter feud broke out into an all-out factional war and resulted in Robespierre demanding that the Commune arrest his most prominent political opponents, most notably Brousseau. That was the cliffhanger of the last episode. And there we shall remain. You see, at the end of that episode, I said that the Commune's plans to arrest leading Girondins would be interrupted by a river of blood. This episode, along with the next two, will focus on that river we have arrived at one of the most gruesome and violent events of the French Revolution. We have arrived at the September Massacres. But before we get into it, I have a huge thank you to say to all the Patreon members of Grey History. Last episode, I announced that I would be trialling six months of full-time production, and the response was simply amazing. Thank you to everyone who signed up as a Patreon, increased their pledge, shared the show on social media, or just wrote in to offer some words of encouragement. The response has been fantastic and heartwarming, and so thank you so much for your support of the podcast. A special call out to all the new Patreons of the show. This includes the new virtuous citizens, Matthias and Bill, and the new true revolutionaries, Jorge, Todd, Lauren, Tom, and Nicholas. A huge thank you to the new Champion of the People, Astrid, who joins Jeffrey, Cynthia, George and Brady, as well as to Mark and Tim, who increased both of their pledges and are now also Champions of the People. A humongous thank you to the incredibly generous Eric and Christy, who both join Brian and Jinx as new Heroes of the Revolution. Finally, thank you to Gavin, who along with Mark and Tim, increased their pledge. Once again, Thank you so much for your support of the show. I'm absolutely delighted to have your sponsorship of the podcast, and thank you so much for all you're doing for keeping grey history on the air. Two final things before we jump into it. Firstly, the poll for the topic of the next bonus episode will close on the 1st of June, so if you haven't already voted on Patreon, don't forget to vote. The current leader is The French Effect, which would explore how the revolution impacted domestic politics of Europe and America in its early years. However, it's only leading by a single vote, and other topics, including the Corsican Revolution and a deep dive into the paper currencies of the revolution, 
are also in contention. So, Patreons, if you want to help select the topic for the next bonus episode, which will be available exclusively to those people supporting the show, now is your time to vote. Finally, if you're not a Patreon supporter of the show, I really need your help. I love producing history that is full of ambiguity and nuance and complexity, and I'm assuming that you love listening to it because, well, because I just don't know how you've survived 39 episodes if you don't. But Grey History takes a tremendous amount of time and effort, and I've put my career on the side to work on the show. Now, I've talked before about all the great bonus content that comes with supporting the podcast on Patreon, and so to provide a sample of some of it, the two episode extras for this episode will be available for free. One will focus on an extraordinary survival tale, and I do mean extraordinary, and another will cover the disgust of an eyewitness. I'll explain more about these episode extras in the show, but in short, the two episode extras for this episode will drop in your podcast feed automatically, just like any other episode. Great content like this accompanies all the main episodes, and then there's also the full-length bonus episodes, the -the behind-the-scenes videos, and much more. In fact, for those Patreons with early access, you can already listen to episode 40, The September Massacres Part 2. So, if you like grey history, if you're enjoying grey history, if you want more grey history, be it on the French Revolution or other topics, I need your support. As a bonus, there's plenty of great content waiting for you right now as a thank you for supporting the show. Remember, these episodes take longer than 50 hours each to make, so I need your help. Not someone else's, but yours. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 39, The September Massacres. Part 1. On the 19th of August, 1792, the Prussian army indulged in what would become one of its favourite guilty pleasures. The Prussian army invaded France. Although the Revolutionary War had commenced in April of that year, the first four months of the conflict had been relatively stable, or at least stable after France's initial assaults on the Austrian Netherlands, what is today modern-day Belgium. These chaotic attacks had been easily rebuffed by Austrian forces, and what resulted for some time was something more akin to a staring contest rather than an actual struggle of arms. This stalemate on the Northern Front was partially due to the fact that the coalition of Prussia and Austria were distracted by another favourite guilty pleasure of the Prussian army, the division of Poland. We'll discuss the invasion of Poland in a future episode, but for now, the key point is this. While the coalition forces took their time in assembling their armies, by August 1792, the armies of the counter-revolution 
had finally been mobilised. Having done so, the game changed dramatically. If a sleepy stalemate had characterised the first four months of the war, it would not characterise the next. In the final fortnight of August, the conflict awoke from its slumber, and France endured a nightmare. Prior to his invasion in mid-August 1792, the Duke of Brunswick, commander of the coalition forces, had made his intentions clear. In the infamous Brunswick Manifesto of July, the highly respected prince proclaimed that he intended to march on Paris and kill anyone who stood in the way. Furthermore, the Duke also made it clear that should Paris touch a single hair on the head of King Louis XVI, he would, and I'm quoting here, inflict an ever-memorable vengeance by delivering over the city of Paris to military execution and complete destruction. With Paris responding to this threat by conducting a bloody second revolution just two weeks later, the scene was set for a ruthless and unforgiving conflict. Crossing the frontier on the 19th of August, the Prussian victories came fast. On the 20th, the Prussians besieged the border fortress of Lonwy, some 160 miles east of Paris, or roughly 260 kilometres. I would like to tell you that the town, neighbouring modern-day Luxembourg, made some heroic last stand against the Germanic invaders. But the reality is quite the opposite. After a few menacing cannonballs, the defenders capitulated. Ironically, the fortress had been constructed during the reign of Louis XIV to prevent an invasion of France. Instead, Longwy collapsed in just three days, and so too did the nation's morale. The sudden surrender and unexpected fall of Longwy had a tremendous impact on the atmosphere of Paris. The city had been told that it would experience military execution at the hands of the Prussian army, and that army was on its way. As discussed in recent episodes, the atmosphere of Paris could already be partly characterised by fear. Fear of royalist plots, fear of counter-revolutionary schemes, fear of betrayal and sedition from the enemy within. Now, the city had to contend with a new fear. Fear of a foreign foe. One they could actually see, and one that would soon be at the gates. Historian Charles Esdale states that the streets of Paris reverberated with a mixture of fear and panic, and that assessment is as accurate as it is concise. With the Prussian army on the march, it was not just regular citizens who were alarmed by the prospect of a Prussian victory. Faced with the increasing probability of a successful Prussian conquest, some within the government gave voice to the idea of retreat. The Prussians may capture Paris, but would it matter if the assembly had already departed the capital? The chief proponents of this idea were several Girondin deputies and ministers, most notably the interior minister Roland. According to historian Eric Hazen, Roland advocated relocating the king, the treasury, and the assembly. Hazen asserts that Roland was not alone in proposing such a drastic measure, with the panicked Girondin ministers for war and finance lending their support. 
Depending on one's perspective, these discussions could amount to advocacy for abandoning the capital. In fact, they could amount to willingly sacrificing the revolutionary city to the Prussian onslaught. However, it's noteworthy that historian Adolf Thiers rejects the idea that the Girondins were planning to desert the capital, let alone sacrifice it. Thiers states that the idea of sacrificing Paris never entered their minds, claiming that the Girondins both loved the revolutionary cause and had too much to gain from the upcoming national convention. Instead, Thiers presents these discussions as the Girondins devising quite reasonable contingency plans in the event Paris was lost, rather than advocacy for abandoning the capital to the wrath of the Prussians. Whatever the reality of their advocacy, subtlety is often lost in such situations. It is clear that the Girondins were at least voicing the idea of pulling back from the endangered capital and wanting to make plans should Paris fall. While making contingency plans was probably a good idea, the revolutionary sans-culottes who called Paris home understandably saw things a little differently. Unfortunately for the Girondins, rumours of a planned flight did little to reinforce their fast deteriorating relationship with the revolutionary cohorts of Paris. Members of the radical press, which were already hostile to many Girondins, attacked the deputies for their eagerness to abandon the heart of revolutionary France. The perception that the Girondins were seeking to flee the capital would come back to bite them. The man often credited with neutralising the idea of retreat was also the man of the hour, Georges Danton. The new Minister of Justice was the link between the Ministry and the Assembly on one hand and the new Paris Commune on the other. More so than his colleagues in the Ministry, Danton was determined to successfully defend Paris. The Cordelier Club leader made it clear that he would not entertain any ideas of retreat. Paris and the revolution would share the same fate. This is how historian Eric Hazen describes the events in the aftermath of the fall of Longwy. After the fall of Longwy, the ministers met to listen to Kersan, one of the deputies dispatched to see the armies, who predicted that Brunswick would be in Paris within two weeks. The Gironda ministers panicked. Roland declared that the government should leave for Troyes or Blois, taking the treasury and the king with it. Clavier and Savan supported him, but Danton stood firm. Now quoting Danton, I have brought my 70-year-old mother to Paris. I have brought my two children, who arrived yesterday. Before the Prussians enter Paris, I would wish my family to perish with me, and that 20,000 torches should turn Paris into a heap of cinders in an instant. Roland, be careful in talking of flight. Be afraid, lest the people are listening. Having shut down discussions of relocating the king and the assembly, Danton threw himself into organising the defence of the capital. On the 28th of August, less than a week after Longwy's capitulation, Danton made one of his most famous speeches to the assembly. Making the dubious claim that the French armies were prepared to meet their foes, 
Danton urged great measures to repel the invaders. It was only through a great upheaval that we destroyed despotism in the capital. It is only through a national upheaval that we shall be able to repel the despots. Up to now, you have seen only the simulated war of Lafayette. Today, we must wage a far more frightful war. The war of the nation against the despots. It is time to tell the people that the people in mass must hurl themselves against their foes. With Danton and other revolutionaries demanding radical measures, both the Legislative Assembly and the Paris Commune got to work. The measures adopted were numerous and included the raising of a new force of 30,000 volunteers from Paris and its surrounding departments. But it's here, in the final days of August, that the first terror became more terrifying. Determined to root out seditious conspirators within the capital, the city's gates were closed for a period of almost 48 hours. The plan was simple. The commune would go door to door, house to house, and arrest all those who were connected to the previous regime. In this way, it was hoped that the plots of wicked citizens would be discovered before the Prussian armies were outside the capital. That Paris would purge the enemy within before it had the chance to benefit the enemy without. In order to ensure this search effort succeeded, no effort was spared to lock down the capital. Not only were the gates closed, but a curfew was introduced, and boats were stationed in waterways to block off those who would escape by river. Neighbouring departments were informed that they were to arrest anyone who they suspected of recently fleeing the capital. Citizens were told to illuminate the streets with candles on their windowsills, and the authorities promptly conducted raids and searches as they hunted their foes. As homes and businesses were searched, as people were questioned and arrested, as the enemy drew closer, it can be said, to put it succinctly, that terror consumed Paris. Historian Peter Kruputkin depicts a city consumed by fear. On the afternoon of August 29, Paris seemed dead, a prey to gloomy terror. It having been forbidden for anyone to go out after six o'clock in the evening, all the streets, by nightfall, were in the possession of the patrols, strictly strong, each man armed with a sabre or an improvised pike. Towards one o'clock in the night, the searchings began throughout Paris. The patrols entered every apartment, looking for arms and taking away those which they found in the houses of royalists. As terrifying as these events were, they were also terrifyingly unsuccessful. While at least several hundred muskets were seized, that figure was far short of the many thousands which the authorities had anticipated. Furthermore, no counter-revolutionary plots were discovered, and while some historians claim as many as 3,000 Parisians were arrested during the searches, the vast majority of these were promptly released. With the Commune unable to detain all who had been arrested, 
priority was understandably given to non-constitutional priests as well as other royalists whose guilt was beyond question. And yes, guilt is in inverted commas. But the dramatic actions of the Commune and the Assembly failed to soothe the fearful, borderline hysteric concerns of the populace. The unexpected and sudden capitulation of L'Ennui not only instilled fear in Parisian hearts, but the speed in which the fortress succumbed seemed to many to be proof of yet more treachery. We've already discussed at length the common belief in conspiracies and plots during this time, and the brief resistance of a well-supplied and well-fortified garrison town, or at least one that was perceived to be so, reinforced this suspicion of treason from within. Yet belief in royalist plots and counter-revolutionary schemes wasn't the only commonly held rumour that was doing the rounds of Paris. No, another set of rumours were also considered fact amongst many members of Parisian society, and these beliefs are critical to understanding the events we're about to discuss. If there was a list of things that we human beings seem to love, on that list has to be rumour. We're all guilty of indulging in a little bit of gossip, dabbling in a little bit of hearsay, embellishing a story here or there. The Parisians of the 18th century were no exception, and in addition to royalist plots and scandalous court secrets, a topic on the minds of just about everybody was, ironically, a topic on the minds of many people hundreds of years later. That topic was none other than crime. Specifically, prisons. You see, from the start of the revolution, Paris loved a good prison rumour. Even before the revolution, part of what gave the Bastille its significance was the alleged atrocities conducted within. After the Bastille's fall, the fixation on jails hardly dissipated. In fact, it increased. From late 1789, rumours had swirled that criminals were planning to break out of their cells and attack innocent citizens and true patriots. The intensity of these rumours fluctuated over time, but major events, such as the King's failed escape attempt in June 1791, would send these rumours into overdrive. The idea was that criminals would descend upon the innocent murdering and pillaging as they went. Over time, events seemed to reinforce the idea that the prisoners were plotting something. Multiple historians and contemporaries claim that the prisoners were running operations to forge assignats, the paper currency printed by the revolution. It was believed that these operations were not only enriching the criminals, but also fueling the hardships of the people most notably inflation. Furthermore, a series of fires in one prison in January 1792 was interpreted as yet another sign that the prisoners were preparing to strike. In addition to this proof of conspiracy, it was widely perceived that the jails were overcrowded, that the wardens were corrupt, that the prisons were understaffed, and that escapes were common. All of this resulted in a considerable number of quite worrying rumours 
that the prisons of Paris were harbouring a deadly and imminent threat. Now, to say that this was all madness is all well and good, but historian Timothy Tackett has conducted exceptional research on this topic, and it's clear that many Parisians from all walks of life believed in these rumours. I want to make this clear. It was not just some uneducated, illiterate rabble, half drunk on a strong brew, which became fixated on the prisons and their apparent danger. No, many educated, informed and well-off citizens believed these whispers as well. It's here that we combine several loose threads from the past few episodes. In the fearful atmosphere caused by the sudden demise of Longwy, the Prussian advance proved to be the catalyst for an explosive mixture of rumours and grievances. The long-standing rumours of deadly prison breaks mixed with suspicions that royalist plots and conspiracies were lurking in the capital. By late August, it was rumoured that the prisoners were in the pay of counter-revolutionary forces. The Commune may have arrested hundreds of priests and royalist sympathisers in recent weeks, but all this had done was gather the enemies of the revolution in a handful of concentrated places. The rumours claimed that the newly imprisoned priests and aristocrats were now collaborating with the common criminals of the prisons. These criminals, now paid by royalist forces, would break out of the prisons and massacre the citizens of Paris. Furthermore, it was claimed that they were coordinating this assault with the enemy. The prisoners of Paris were supposedly planning their attack with the Prussian army, ensuring that they would strike at the most optimal moment in their quest to tear down the revolution. At this point, you already have a serious powder keg just waiting for a match. But let's add into this mixture of rumours and conspiracies the seemingly inexplicable slowness of the new revolutionary tribunal. To bring in the discussions of the last episode, remember that the radicals of Paris had demanded a new revolutionary tribunal to swiftly dispense justice to all the enemies of the people. This justice, aka execution, was not only what was right, but what was required, given the fact that the enemy was approaching and that the prisons were overcrowded. Yet, instead of swift justice, the new revolutionary tribunal proved frustratingly slow, and as previously discussed, some radicals concluded that the new institution had been corrupted by counter-revolutionary forces. The same forces who were planning to use the overflowing prisons as a weapon against Paris. All of a sudden, the pieces of an elaborate royalist plot were coming together. In response, the most radical journalists of Paris urged extreme measures. We've already covered Marat's calls for the people to put the prisoners to the sword, and he was not alone in his demands. The radical journalist and future revolutionary leader, Jacques Hébert, echoed these sentiments, as did the journalist Louis Ferron. Not only was it just for the people to carry out these executions, but it was necessary as well. This view was supported by some of the city's most radical sections, 
some of whom had been threatening since as far back as June 1792 that the people would break into the prisons and dispense their own justice should the courts fail to do so. Indeed, it was in an effort to prevent such actions that the Assembly went against its better judgment and allowed the new revolutionary tribunal to be created in the middle of August. But with the tribunal fast becoming just as distrusted as the other judicial institutions, the radical press doubled down on calls to put the criminals to the sword. After all, if the people of Paris failed to strike these sinister individuals, then surely they would strike first. Now, in reality, we know with the benefit of hindsight that this is all much to do about nothing. Not only was there no conspiracy, but the prisons themselves were hardly overflowing. It's true that they were not exactly the definition of Azkaban, but the jails weren't anywhere near as overcrowded or bursting at the seams as the rumours suggested. In fact, when you factor in all those who had been released after their initial arrest, the total number of new inmates as a result of the first terror was just a few hundred. But that's logic speaking, and I hope I've imparted upon you by now that we are dealing with an environment characterised by fear, suspicion, anxiety, and at times outright hysteria. In such times, logic is a scarce commodity. Thus, the cries from the radical press were clear, and they were heard widely. Their calls for the immediate liquidation of the city's prisons found sympathetic ears amongst many Parisians. This included not just revolutionary sans-culottes, but well-to-do and educated citizens as well. Parisians from all walks of life were terrified of the threat emanating from the prisons. We know this from the letters and journals of the time, and as a result, we know many from a variety of backgrounds favoured radical measures. Now, to be clear, not everyone was convinced of the dangers of an elaborate counter-revolutionary prison plot. In one of the episode extras for this episode, we'll hear from the Scottish physician John Moore, who was residing in Paris at this time. He'll recount not only the rumours he heard, but his utter disbelief of such fanciful claims. Yet, Moore's rejection of the rumours was not shared by everyone, including others who were both educated and informed in matters of current affairs. Amongst believers of these menacing plots, radical suggestions were fast becoming acceptable solutions. As one informed contemporary put it, Paris should cut off the arm to save the body. I'm sure that metaphor would have horrified John Moore, who was a physician. All of this came to a head on the 2nd of September, a little more than three weeks after the fall of the monarchy, and just more than a week since the fall of Longwy. On the 2nd of September, news reached Paris of another military disaster. The mighty fortress of Verdun, just 140 miles or 220 kilometres east of Paris, was not only besieged by Prussian forces, but on the verge of defeat. The news of Verdun's imminent capitulation and rumours that it had already struck panic into the heart of the capital. 
rumours swirled that the Prussians were sacking Verdun and that the forces of the French émigrés were closing clubs, imprisoning revolutionaries and restoring the old regime. Some journals in Paris had already been making near-apocalyptic claims as to the plans of the Prussian king, Frederick William II. With the impending demise of Verdun, the claims that Frederick intended to brutally destroy Paris looked almost a foregone conclusion. In the panic caused by the news of Verdun's imminent collapse, the authorities sought to inspire the people to fight. Danton, in a famous speech on the 2nd, demanded additional measures to defend the capital. Famously, he proclaimed, To deflect them, messieurs, we need boldness, and again boldness, and always boldness, and France will then be saved. Boldness is what he would get, but it would not come from the deputies of the assembly. The commune, hearing Danton's cries, prepared emergency measures in response to the crisis which threatened the revolution's very existence. Posters were pinned up across the city declaring the enemy was at the gates, and in such a scenario, the measures adopted were as you would expect. Fortifying walls, distributing arms, promoting recruitment into the armed forces, these sorts of things. But as the various authorities discussed how best to respond to the Prussian advance, some proposals were unorthodox, to say the least. With prison conspiracies believed to be a fact amongst many in the capital, some of the city's sections proposed radical measures to neuter this threat from within. The imperative to do so was great, as troops were about to depart from Paris for the front lines. If these troops were to depart before the prison conspiracy was crushed, well, Paris would then be defenceless once these criminals finally sprung their trap. The section of Possignet led the charge. The section resolved that all priests and other suspected conspirators held in the prisons of Paris should be immediately put to death. This resolution was quickly distributed to the other sections of Paris, some of whom themselves adopted similar motions. For example, the Luxembourg section decreed that before the volunteers' departure for the front, the prisons should be purged. Thus, it's on this day, the 2nd of September 1792, that one of the bloodiest and most horrific days of the revolution occurs. It's on this day that we encounter the start of the September massacres. The bloodshed started with the revolution's favourite boogeyman, non-constitutional priests. In the afternoon of the 2nd, a group of refractory clergy who had been arrested during the First Terror were being relocated to a prison called the Abbey. In six carts, the prisoners were being chaperoned by federes. And coincidentally, these federes happened to be the radical volunteers from Marseille and Brest. Yes, the same federes who had almost caused insurrections upon their arrival to Paris in late July, and the same federes who played such a major role in the overthrow of the monarchy. Escorting priests who they despised 
some of these guardsmen declared the guilt of their cargo as they walked through the streets of Paris. A crowd started to follow, and when the prisoners arrived at the Abbey, they were greeted by another crowd as well. Wait, did I say crowd? Mob might be a better word for it. Hurling insults and threats at the priests within the carts, the prisoners were understandably reluctant to disembark, surrounded by such a hostile mob. But these men of God were not given a choice. The first priest to leave a carriage was soon attacked by the mob. Cut down by an array of weapons, the mob proceeded to drag these priests out of their carts and put them to the sword. The scene was horrific as the prisoners were brutally cut down and hacked apart. Far from protecting the men that they were meant to be guarding, some federes joined in, assisting the crowd in dispatching the enemies of the people. After all, according to the rumours, it was these men who would slaughter the defenceless women and children of Paris once the fighting men had departed for the front. With the priests slaughtered in the streets, the attention of the mob turned to the Carmelite convent. The convent had been used as a facility to detain perhaps as many as 200 refractory priests, and thus it was a target for a rabble obsessed with eliminating the seditious clerics. The mob broke into the convent and proceeded to butcher many while they searched for the Archbishop of Arles. The Archbishop identified himself and for that he was rewarded with a sabre to the face, followed by a pike through the heart. While some priests attempted to find safety, they were continually butchered until someone interrupted the killings to bring some very important news. They weren't to kill the priests, but to put them on trial. A makeshift tribunal was hastily put together, which proceeded to demand that the non-constitutional clergy swear loyalty to the constitution. None swore, and so none survived. Back at the abbey, some of the men involved in the original killings had decided to reward themselves with a well-earned cup of wine. Now drunk, it was decided that the time had come to deal with the prisoners inside the prison, rather than just the priests who were being transferred to it. Breaking into the jail, a mob proceeded to slaughter pretty much anyone they could get their hands on. With slaughter engulfing the prison, a very brave jailer lobbied the mob to stop. This jailer, who I must say must have had some significant guts, proceeded to tell the literally blood-soaked assailants that their cause was just, but that they risked spilling innocent blood. The mob rebuffed this position, and did so in a way that underscores their motivations to protect Paris. As one assailant put it to the jailer, If the Prussians and the Austrians were at Paris, would they distinguish between guilt and innocence? I have a wife and children, whom I will not leave in danger. If you think it fit, give the scoundrels arms, and we will engage an equal number of them. But before we go... Paris must be purified. As much as I would love to tell you that these scoundrels were armed and that some sort of Hunger Games-style arena was quickly created in the centre of Paris, 
that is not what occurred. The assailants eventually agreed that a tribunal should be created, and the wicked occupants of the prison would be given a fair trial before their execution. This tribunal would be presided over by a man named Mayar. For those with exceptional memories, I mean freakishly good memories, or for those that also have one of those memories but are binging the podcast, you may recognise the name Mayar. Mayar was a prominent assailant of the Bastille, as well as a chief organiser of the October Days in 1789. That's the event that saw tens of thousands of Parisians, most famously market women, march on Versailles and forcibly bring the royal family to Paris. Well, Mayar, who had connections to the new Paris Commune, was nominated as the president of this new tribunal, and, using the records of the jail, as well as both the mob and official staff of the prison, an impromptu courtroom was created. To pause for a second, some of you might be scratching your heads at the fact that I just said that Maillard was not only the improvised judge for this new tribunal, but also had connections to the Paris Commune. As radical as this body may be, surely the municipal government of the capital would be seeking to stop these murders rather than oversee them. Well, yes and no. The actions of the Commune is a very thorny and quite complicated topic, and we're going to address it in the next episode. For now, we're going to focus on what happened, but don't worry, we will get to just what the various authorities did and did not do as it relates to assisting or stopping the September massacres. Hint, it's about as messy as some of these prison cells. Getting back on track, this new tribunal proceeded to systematically work its way through a list of counter-revolutionaries, starting with some unfortunate Swiss guards. During their trial, the Swiss argued that they had been assaulted and merely followed orders while defending the Tuileries on the 10th of August. Maillard would have none of it, and sentenced them to the fate of being relocated to another prison, a prison named La Force. This was code for something else, however, for as soon as the prisoners entered the next courtyard, the awaiting mob descended upon them and hacked them to pieces. After the Swiss came prisoners accused of counterfeiting assignats, the paper currency of the revolution. This was considered a terrible crime because inflation was leading to significant hardship amongst the common people, including many sans-culottes. Needless to say, the counterfeiters were sent to La Force and were quickly put to the sword. One of the more interesting cases was that of Montmorin, a former minister of foreign affairs. His impromptu trial must have come as a bit of surprise to the staunch royalist, as Montmorin had actually been acquitted by the new revolutionary tribunal. By that I mean the official one we discussed last episode, the one lobbied for by the Commune and established by the Legislative Assembly. Rumoured to be a member of the sinister Austrian committee within the Tuileries Palace, Montmorin's acquittal was one of the many reasons that some radical revolutionaries were disappointed in the work of the new body and suspicious that it may have been corrupted. Unfortunately for Montmorin, although he may have been acquitted, he hadn't been released, 
And so the former minister now found himself at a new tribunal, the Tribunal of the People. Momara proclaimed that he refused to recognise this new court, and the blood-stained Mayar was all too happy to comply. Mayar informed the former minister that he would face another trial at the prison of La Force, and Montmorin didn't understand the true meaning of this declaration. Oblivious to his impending death, Montmorin asked for a carriage. He was promptly butchered when he left the room. Across the city, tribunals like the one at the Abbey were established at prisons which were now experiencing similar scenes. On the 2nd of September and the days which followed, impromptu tribunals evaluated the guilt of criminals all over the city. In some prisons, these scenes were like those we just discussed, with makeshift courts hearing the defence of criminals before having them slaughtered in neighbouring rooms or courtyards. In other jails, the scene was much closer to a systematic killing of the inhabitants, with small squads of assailants moving from cell to cell and eliminating the enemies of the people. One of the few prisons to see no notable disturbances was the temple, which housed the most important prisoners of Paris, aka the royal family. We'll discuss in the next episode the role of the authorities in these massacres, but for now, just note that a deliberate and successful effort was made by the Commune to protect King Louis XVI and his kin. In saying that, that does not mean that the royals were not aware of what was happening elsewhere. As we'll see shortly, the Queen will be, well, let's say she'll be informed of the unfortunate demise of one of her ladies-in-waiting. The horrors of these days are recorded by many eyewitnesses. Some recount how assailants would mutilate and toy with the corpses of those they had slain, while others noted that crowds would gather and watch the public butchering of those deemed to be the enemies of the people. Contemporaries record exhausted men, covered in blood, drinking away as they rested after hours of work. Having stacked mutilated corpses on large piles, some men were barely able to lift their arms due to their exhaustion. The historical accounts make for tough reading, and I have no desire to spend the entire episode itemising one grotesque atrocity after the next. Instead, I want to focus on the exceptional experiences of just a few victims, and some of whom actually live to tell the tale. Some of the most harrowing records were written by those prisoners who managed to survive. One such prisoner was named Jeuniac de Saint-Mier, and although he avoided being butchered, I certainly just butchered his name. How he survived would be almost humorous if it wasn't for the fact that his ordeal was true, and his brush with death will be one of the episode extras for this episode. Remember, that this episode extra is available to everyone just for this episode, so do give it a listen. St. Miar is absolutely fascinating, and I think you'll enjoy hearing an in-depth account of what one of these impromptu trials actually looked like. For now, though, I want to focus on this account from St. Miar, which gives one a sense of what it must have been like 
for those awaiting their trial. To be frank, it's horrific. Locked up at the Abbey prison, St. Miar records the rather unique thoughts that occupy one's mind as they await their certain death. The most important matter that employed our thoughts was to consider what posture we should put ourselves into when dragged to the place of slaughter in order to suffer death with the least pain. Occasionally, we asked some of our companions to go to the turret window to watch the attitude of the victims. They came back to say that those who tried to protect themselves with their hands suffered the longest, as the blows of the blades were thus weakened before they reached the head. That some of the victims actually lost their hands and arms before their bodies fell. And that those who put their hands behind their backs obviously suffered less pain. We, therefore, recognised the advantages of this last posture and advised each other to adopt it when it came to be our turn to be butchered. I want to stop for a second. Can you imagine what it must be like to be locked up in a cell knowing you're about to die? Knowing you're about to be, to use St. Miar's own words, butchered. And in knowing your fate, you have to make a decision. Will you resist your urge to defend yourself in the hope of a quick death? Or will you try to resist, perhaps try to flee, try to plead, try to beg, and risk a much longer, more excruciating demise? That is a decision that none of us wish we ever have to even contemplate. And fortunately for St. Miar, he never had to make his choice. As I said, St. Miar survives this ordeal thanks to an amazing trial. And how he does so will be the topic of one of the episode extras. Trust me when I say you don't want to miss it. Indeed, like St. Miyar, some people manage to survive this assault on the prisons. And there's all sorts of stories from those who cheated death in the first few days of September. It's difficult to determine just how many prisoners were found innocent by these makeshift tribunals operating at more than half a dozen prisons across Paris, but it's clear that some prisoners were able to survive. However, the manner in which they did so varied greatly. St. Maillard would survive through an excellent defence at his trial, but a gentleman named Sombre was released under very different circumstances. Prior to the revolution, Sombre had been the governor of the Invalids. The Invalids was a military building in Paris, and while it contained an arsenal, its primary purpose was to care for both aged and disabled soldiers. We briefly discussed the Invalids during the episode which focused on the storming of the Bastille, as the crowd broke into the arsenal to obtain thousands of muskets. Despite his attempts to hamper the revolt of July 1789, as the governor more or less complied with the demands of the Parisians and their new municipal government, Sombre didn't share the same gruesome fate as the Bastille's governor, de Lenay, 
who of course was killed and beheaded. Fast forward three years and Sombre was still a committed royalist. As a result, the military officer was arrested in the aftermath of the 10th of August. Detained in the First Terror, he was one of the most high-profile royalists held in the city's prisons when the massacres erupted in the first week of September. The story goes that his daughter came to the prison in which he was being held in an effort to secure his release. Her passionate pleas and her father's defence secured his acquittal from the makeshift tribunal, but then something went wrong. According to legend, the mob of bloodthirsty assailants awaiting outside the pop-up courtroom had no intention of letting Sombre depart with his life. He was, after all, a committed, unrepentant and high-profile royalist. Desperate to save her father, his daughter, Marie Marais, pleaded with the mob to spare him, and one offered her the chance to do so by toasting to the nation. Yet, when presented with a goblet, the true meaning of the toast was revealed. Instead of wine, the vessel was full to the brim of blood. The daughter was presented with a warm cup of blood gathered from the previous victims. As she wished to save her father's life, she did the unthinkable and drank. Decades later, her son claimed she could never touch a cup of wine. To be frank, I don't blame her. Now, I have seen this story multiple times in my research, and it's one of the most commonly told and one of the most known stories of the September massacres. The fact that it can pass as even plausible does give you a sense of just how barbaric and primitive these massacres were. However, whether or not there is any truth to this particular story is hard to determine. Historian John Dolberg Acton notes the first records he could locate of this tale weren't until quite some time after the massacres themselves. And he also notes that the pension subsequently issued by the convention to the Sombri family has no mention of a bloody goblet. Some historians suggest that the story is fictional, that it was made up by Girondin sympathisers to discredit their political opponents associated with the massacres. More on that next episode. However, other historians, including Dolberg Acton, do believe these claims to be true. Another theory is that the young lady asked for some water after her father's trial, and by the time it had passed through a series of bloodied hands, the water had been contaminated, hence resulting in a cup full of blood, so to speak. This explanation seems plausible, but again, I can't actually tell you what if any of this happened. What I can tell you is that these scenes of early September were so bloody, so brutal, so primitive, that something like this story can at least pass as possible. Again, this is one of the most frequently told stories of the September massacres, along with the case of a particular princess we're about to discuss. To wrap this up, you might be interested to know that this story became so widely known in the 19th century that several writers used it for inspiration. This included the famous French writer Victor Hugo, and if that name seems familiar, Hugo is the author of Les Miserables, 
and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yet, the Sombres did not have a happy ending. The former governor may have survived the September massacres, but he was executed during the Terror in mid-1794. Both his sons shared his fate, one of whom was captured after fighting with royalist forces. For those in Paris, the heart of the heroine of this story, Marie Marais, can actually be visited today. Usually the hearts of the governors are displayed at the invalids, but as her father was buried in an unmarked grave, and as legend tells a story of a daughter's love saving her father, Marie Marais' heart can be found in the place of her father's. Getting back on track, the stories of Saint-Mier and Sombrie are rarities. For every story of someone being acquitted or cheating death, you can find yet more gruesome accounts of those who were far less fortunate. Of particular fame is the ordeal suffered by Marie Antoinette's lady-in-waiting, the Princess de Lamballe. Princess de Lamballe was a 42-year-old confidant of the Queen, and if you believe the rumours, the two were also lovers. Remember, Queen Marie Antoinette had long suffered from being the target of scandalous publications, accusing her of all sorts of wild sexual acts, and de Lamballe featured in some of these stories. Refusing to swear an oath of loyalty to the nation, she was considered a traitor and dealt with accordingly. The eyewitness, Restef de la Bretonne, recorded the scene. I saw a woman appear, pale as her underclothing, held up by a counter-clerk. They said to her in a harsh voice, cry out, long live the nation. No, no, she said. They made her climb onto a heap of corpses. They told her again to cry out, long live the nation. She refused disdainfully. Then a killer seized her, tore off her dress, and opened her belly. She fell and was finished off by the others. Never had such horror offered itself to my imagination. I tried to flee. My legs failed. I fainted. Le Breton's account of the death of Princess de Lamballe is, believe it or not, mild. At least it's mild in comparison to the legends and rumours which surround the princess's death. What can be agreed upon is that the princess refused to do as the mob demanded, although I've read conflicting accounts as to whether she refused to swear an oath to the nation or if she simply refused to denounce her close friends, the king and queen. As a result, Lombau was brutally killed and beheaded, with her head subsequently paraded outside the cell of the queen so she could see the fate of her friend and lady-in-waiting. Most troubling, the death of Lamballe, at least according to some accounts, is associated with grotesque acts of sexual violence. Not only do some variations of the story tell of the princess being raped, but they also record her genitals being hacked off in addition to her heart being cut out from her corpse. Now, the stories surrounding the mutilation of Princess de Lamballe fall under a similar umbrella to those relating to Marie Marais, the daughter who supposedly saved her royalist father by drinking a cup of blood. 
All of these accounts are contested, with the primary evidence either lacking or contradictory. Unsurprisingly, they do not appear in official government records, and some notable historians refute their accuracy, including Pierre Caron, who is regarded as one of the best when it comes to the September massacres. However, other respected historians believe the most extreme accounts of September, or at least aren't willing to dismiss them. In short, the stories of Lambal and Marie Marai remain grey history, but the fact that they can be believed by some contemporaries and by many respected scholars gives you an indication of just how bloody and how traumatic these events were. For several days, the prisons of Paris were the scenes of these ghastly and harrowing crimes. By the time the September massacres came to an end a few days later, approximately 1,200 prisoners had been killed, with estimates often varying by a couple of hundred above or below that figure. At 1,200 dead, that figure represents perhaps as much as half of the total prison population. So what we've been discussing here is the city of Paris systematically eliminating almost half of its criminals through a combination of makeshift tribunals and bands of killers. As to be expected, the traditional enemies of the revolution were amongst the dead, especially given the deliberate and concentrated arrests of the first terror. Roughly 220 priests were killed, condemned for choosing their god over their country. Yet that figure, 220, might seem a little low, considering I just said that approximately 1,200 perished during the massacres. Indeed, one of the great ironies of the people's justice was that its judgments were hardly focused on the counter-revolutionaries that actually menaced the revolution. Historian George Lefebvre claims that no more than a quarter of the victims were priests, while multiple historians note that by the time you then add nobles, Swiss guards and other political prisoners, this group of prisoners still amounts to no more than a third of the total dead. The vast majority of the victims were common criminals, and some of them were not even criminals at all. Amongst the dead lay at least 35 women, primarily sex workers who had been detained for prostitution. Likewise, roughly 30 young boys, some aged as young as 12, were amongst those murdered, with these juvenile detainees lacking any link to seditious conspiracies or treasonous plots. The simple fact of the matter is that the vast majority of those who were killed were simply common criminals. The deaths of these individuals reflects the great irony of popular justice, and in particular, mob justice. Too often, it's anything but just. In short, the bloody massacres of September claimed roughly 1,200 lives, many of whom cannot be considered to be guilty of any crimes against the nation, let alone those deserving capital punishment. These horrific events were driven by a combination of fear, paranoia, hysteria and anxiety, and the mangled and diverse corpses left behind reflect as such. The September massacres were bloody. They were horrific. They were at times barbaric. The blood spilt was so great 
that the Justice Minister Danton described the event as creating a river of blood between Paris and its enemies. But as great as that river may have been, the impacts and significance of these events were even larger. Having discussed what happened, there are still so many questions that need to be addressed. Who were the perpetrators of these crimes? Was this event spontaneous or was it planned? Why did the authorities fail to intervene and how did ordinary citizens react to the blood in the streets? Who, if anybody, defended the killings or at least accepted them without resistance? Beyond these immediate questions, there are those which focus on the longer-term impacts of these gruesome events. With such traumatising events engulfing the capital, how did the September massacres impact the war effort, the elections for the new national convention, and more broadly, the course and character of the revolution itself? The significance and ambiguities of the September massacres means that these questions have no easy answers. They are all grey history. And so they will be the focus of the next two episodes. For the consequences of the September massacres are as numerous as the corpses they left behind. Thank you for listening to episode 39, The September Massacres Part 1. There are two amazing episode extras for this episode. And remember, these are free to listen to for everybody. I'm even going to drop them in the main feed. The first episode extra will recount the miraculous survival tale of an aristocratic prisoner who, despite proudly announcing himself as a royalist, manages to survive his date with an impromptu prison trial. His trial actually starts with him witnessing the bloody demise of the prisoner tried immediately before him. So, needless to say, the fact that he survived his trial is, well, a minor miracle. This account will give you a front row seat as to what some of these tribunals looked like, so you definitely don't want to miss it. The second episode extra is from the Scottish physician John Moore, and will explore the initial reaction in Paris to the news of Verdun's imminent collapse, as well as the horrific scenes of September 2nd. Moore's diary will also offer a sneak peek as to some of the thorny questions we'll be tackling in future episodes. Speaking of future episodes, in episode 40, we're going to examine the who of the September massacres. Who instigated it, who propelled it, who tried to stop it, and who deliberately allowed it to continue. As you can imagine, with such a chaotic and turbulent event, pretty much no one is willing to agree on, well, anything. And so it will be absolutely full of grey history. For those Patreon supporters with early access, Episode 40, The September Massacres Part 2, is waiting for you right now. A reminder that I desperately need your help to keep grey history running. For the cost of just half a cup of coffee, you can gain access to episode extras, bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and a range of other great benefits. Perhaps most importantly, you can help keep grey history on the air. I need your help. Not someone else's, but yours. And if you're enjoying Grey History, if you like Grey History, then please support the podcast right now. There's a link on the show notes and on the website. And of course, 
you can cancel anytime. A final thank you to all the new Patreons of the show, and a special call out to the extra generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Jinx, Eric, and Christy. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Please tell anyone and everyone about the show, and have a great day.